My name is Michael. I am on team here at SBS, and it's really nice to be the one here with you this morning. Um, if you don't know me, I say two things at the start of every preach that I do. Number one is that I have a lot of nervous energy. I find it very difficult to stay still, so bear with me. Number two is, and I apologize if you've heard me preach before and you've heard me say this a thousand times, but I'm Scottish. Okay, uh, that's what my accent is. It's very soft. Uh, I've been preaching for quite a few years and almost invariably someone comes up to me afterwards and was like, good message, I think, but I was distracted for about 10 minutes trying to work out where your accent is from. So I like to start with that so you don't have to be super distracted uh, this morning. So what are we going to do this morning? Well, we're journeying together through the book of Acts as a church. And uh, I'm going to do a bit of a big picture recap of the story so far, then a smaller picture recap, and then we'll get on to some, to some points, some meaty parts. So the book of Acts is a book in the Bible, and it tells us what Jesus' followers got up to immediately after Jesus' ministry on earth. And Jesus came to teach, he came to perform miracles, but ultimately... We believe he came to live a perfect life, a blameless life, the Son of God, so that he could die for our sins, to bring us back into a right relationship with a God who loves us. Praise God. Now, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus, just after Jesus has been resurrected, but before he ascends to heaven, he gives his disciples two main commandments before he ascends to heaven. And it's quite well known, Acts 1 verse 4 to 8. And I'm going to read 4 and 5 and 8, and it may be on the screen. It says this, On one occasion while he, Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And verse 8 goes on to say, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, two commands. Number one, wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. And two, when the Holy Spirit comes, be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and all the earth. And that's exactly what they do. Jesus ascends to heaven and the disciples wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit, for God to descend on them and give them power. And in Acts 2, we read that the Holy Spirit does come on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is that fancy-sounding name for the Jewish feast. It means literally 50, because it was celebrated 50 days after the Sabbath of Passover week. So it's a feast, and the Spirit comes. And in Acts 2, 2 to 4, it says that the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So the disciples go out, and because of the feast, because of Pentecost, there are Jews from every, uh, God-fearing Jews from every nation there, and each of them hears the 11 disciples, one's missing, uh, speaking in their own language. Okay? Peter addresses the crowd. He teaches them about Jesus. He shows how Jesus came to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. He preaches the repentance of sins for forgiveness. And about 3,000 people are added 
to the people. They accept his message and they get baptized. The Holy Spirit comes to earth and immediately begins working powerfully in the lives and the ministry of the disciples and the apostles of the early church. And in this preaching series, that's exactly what we've been looking at over the last five weeks. We've been looking at how the Holy Spirit worked in Acts and what we can learn about the Holy Spirit working in our church and in our lives. But Philippa, who's in charge of what we preach on, has given us a specific task not only to look at how the Holy Spirit is working in Acts, but also to look at it through a certain lens. And that is the lens of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So Galatians 5, you may know it from children's songs or just because you've read the Bible. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, uh, patience, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. The Bible tells us that if the Holy Spirit is within us and working in our lives, those are the kind of things that we will see working. They'll be the fruit of our lives, the kind of things that we express, the attributes we express. And therefore, it's useful to look at these things as footprints within Acts. We're looking at Acts and we want to see where the Holy Spirit's moving. We want to look for evidence of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So that's where we're at, big picture. Smaller picture, the disciples stayed in Jerusalem. They preached, they healed, they performed miracles, they did amazing things, and they started also to face great persecution. The church is growing, the Holy Spirit is working, we're seeing these fruit but they've been causing a stir. They've been challenging the religious leaders. They've been getting arrested. And last week we heard that Stephen in Acts 7 was martyred. He was stoned to death by the religious leaders and a group of uh, religious people. And if you haven't heard last week's preach by Timmy, it was fantastic. I encourage you to go back and watch it on the YouTube channel. It's great. And he said that even though Stephen faced this huge uh, terrifying ordeal, death in such a terrifying way, he had peace. The Bible says he went to sleep. It doesn't say, you know, he died in panic and terror. He went to sleep because of the Holy Spirit within Stephen. That's what Timmy was saying last week. He had the fruit of the Spirit that was peace in the face of such difficult situations. So, I'm really excited to unpack Acts 8 with you this morning. It's an incredibly important part of the narrative of Acts, and it's an incredibly rich part of the story. In fact, the hardest part of preparing for this morning was choosing what not to say. I think I have about 5,000 words of stuff taken out of my notes. Don't worry, that's more than, well more than half of what I'm going to be saying this morning. Um, but I do want to read all of Acts 8 because we're kind of trying to get a feel for the narrative of the early church, what actually happened. So it's a bit of a long bit of scripture, but it's three distinct parts, so I think you'll be fine. And also I'm going to give you a spoiler as to which fruit of the Spirit we're looking for, so that as we read it together, you might be able to go, oh, maybe that's an expression of that fruit of the Spirit. So today, this morning, we're looking at faithfulness, faithfulness in Acts 8. Faithfulness, being true to your word, being true to your commitments, practicing what you preach. Here's a challenge. Okay. Being loyal, being faithful, faithfulness. So as I read this passage, do your best to follow along with the story. 
I'll do my best to read it well. And do your best to see how the Holy Spirit helps people in this passage to act with faithfulness. So, Acts 8. Acts 8 has one of these strange little add-ons from the Acts 7. Uh, it says, and Saul approved of their killing him, is Acts 8, 1, is how it starts. It'll be on the screen. And basically, that's just kind of a, a, the end of the Stephen being martyred narrative. And it goes on to start here. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading a book of of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near him, near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? 
Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of God. So, good job. Pat yourself on the back. Go through a whole chapter of the Bible. I'm off. Bye. Um, What are we going to do? I want to look at four instances quickly of faithfulness in this passage of the Bible. And hopefully you saw some, and there are more than four, but I thought it would be rude to do any more than four points. So if you're writing notes, here's number one. Faithfulness in the face of persecution. Faithfulness in the face of persecution. We open up in Acts 8 hearing about a period of persecution that immediately follows on from Stephen's death. The persecution causes everyone except the apostles to flee Jerusalem and to be scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. In verse 4, we begin to see the footprints of faithfulness. It says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The members of the early church were facing such strong persecution that they had to flee Jerusalem. And Luke, the author of Acts, tells us in verse 3, just before, that Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And some commentators say that because the persecution was so severe that it also targeted women, you know that it's a particularly severe persecution. And the fact that Luke includes that detail, he's trying to say things were really bad. Yet despite the persecution, they're preaching the word. They are faithful to the command that Jesus gave them in Acts 1.8, which we looked at earlier. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This persecution is the catalyst, is the thing that pushes the gospel to be preached outside of Jerusalem for the first time. I'm sure that the early Christians would much rather have been, had some time to prepare, like had a few prayer meetings, just gone in their own time, spent a season preparing the ground, or it would have been much easier just to flee the persecution and to forget all about the word and to be witnesses of Jesus, yet they showed faithfulness in the face of persecution because the Holy Spirit was working in them. They waited on the Spirit, And then the persecution came, and yet they still were faithful in the face of it because of the Holy Spirit working in them. Number two, faithfulness leads to reconciliation. Faithfulness leads to reconciliation. The very next verse, verse five, introduces the ministry of Philip. Like Stephen, Philip was one of the seven Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews, who were raised up by the apostles to do some, actually they were originally raised up, in, you read in Acts 6, to, to look after a food program to feed people in the church. But very soon they, they needed to do some other things as well. So he's one of the seven, Philip, this is Philip, one of the seven, not Philip, one of the twelve. He went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Philip was faithful to Jesus' command specifically 
specifically to be a witness to the people of Samaria. As you may know, Israel and Samaria have a fairly checkered past. Israel was divided into three main regions, Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, and Judea in the south. And the relationship between the nations has been sketchy at times. I've written this down. I'm going to read it. I'm trying not to read it too obviously, but I don't want to get it right. Animosity between Judeans and Samaria's Samaritans stemmed from very early times and fed on a number of incidents in their respective histories. You may be familiar with them. The split began in the 10th century before Christ with the separation of the 10 northern tribes from the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and the city of Jerusalem because of the disruption that followed the death of Solomon. This separation became racially fixed when the Assyrian Empire destroyed um, the Samaritan, the Samaritans really, uh, in 722 BC. And as we may know, part of the Assyrian way as well as the Babylonian way and the way in ancient Near East to conquer people was to take away all of the upper class and all of the rich people and take them back to your nation and leave the poorer people and then bring a bunch of your people there to intermarry, to intermingle so that you kind of erase the people on a genealogical level. So then the, the distance between Judea and Samaria became also like a, a biological one. They saw themselves as different races. And then it was even worse because the... Uh, so we read about that, by the way, in 1 Kings 12 and 2 Kings 17, if you want to read the, do some homework. Um, but it became worse as well when the Samaritans opposed the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. And you can read about that in Nehemiah 4, as well as many other conflicts, both military conflicts and spiritual conflicts between the people. Why am I giving you this history lesson? Philip flees persecution. He flees the risk of imprisonment and death. He goes to the very land where he is most hated and where he, the people of that land, are most hated by his people. Yet, strengthened and empowered by the Holy Spirit, Philip was faithful to Jesus' command. He proclaimed the Messiah there. He performed miracles and wonders. He caused great joy in the city. People accepted Jesus and were baptized, Samaritans and Jews. Originally one people, after centuries of hostility, begin to be reconciled to one another because of Philip's faithfulness to Jesus' command to go and tell them the good news about Jesus. Faithfulness leads to reconciliation. Number three, faithfulness in rebuke. Philip continues to faithfully preach, heal, and minister in Samaria, so much so that a famous and powerful sorcerer believes and is baptized. And then, faithfully, Peter and John arrive in Samaria to check if what's happening is actually really happening uh, and to pray so that the new believers might receive the Holy Spirit. Simon the sorcerer is there and turns out maybe he didn't have quite such a genuine uh, connection with God as he thought. And he offers to pay for the Holy Spirit. And Peter is outraged, rightfully so, but he's faithful to Jesus' teaching, even in his outrage and even in his rebuke. Verses 20 to 23 say, Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no power or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Peter rebukes Simon tells him to repent and pray. 
is faithfulness once again pointing others to life, not to death. Peter has every reason potentially to reject Simon the sorcerer. He's a Samaritan, like we discussed. He's dabbling in sorcery, which the people of Israel are forbidden to do. And he offers to pay for the Holy Spirit. And yet, instead of just rejecting him and stepping away, he says, that is not okay. Here's how you can become okay with God. Repent and ask for your heart to be changed. Peter shows faithfulness to the message of Jesus, even when rebuking somebody. Number four, final one, faithfulness in following God's call. Let's really briefly touch on that last story. There's so much incredible uh, symbolism in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch that if you want to know more, find me after church because I'd love to bore you uh, with all of the... It's not boring. It's actually extremely exciting and awesome. Um, I'd love to tell you more details, but I don't have time. But it's enough to say that because Philip faithfully responded to God's call, despite the fact that he has this incredible successful ministry, preaching to great crowds, seeing people come to salvation, performing miracles, God tells him, go down that desert road there. And he's like, okay. He goes, despite how well his life is going, how well his ministry is going, he's obedient. And he preaches to one person, the Ethiopian eunuch, someone who is powerful. He's the head of finance for an entire kingdom. He uh, has a chariot and he has his own personal scroll of Isaiah, so you know he's wealthy. And Philip speaks to him, explains the word to him. He makes a commitment. He gets baptized and with joy, he goes back to his country. Faithfulness in following God's call sends an evangelist for the first time to all the peoples of the world. So, so much faithfulness in Acts 8. So what? <laughs> What's the application? Three genuinely brief thoughts about the application of this. Hopefully you can take something away from it, but here's three that I want you to think about. The first thing to take away is the same thing as we're taking away every week as we look at this series of the Holy Spirit working in the book of Acts. And that is that when we, as God's people, wait on the Holy Spirit together, as the disciples did, the Holy Spirit changes us as individuals and as a church, as a community. He makes us more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more faithful, gentler, and have more self-control. So that's number one. We need to wait on God, and we will have an opportunity to do that after. Number two, the next thing to take away is that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, is expressed in our lives to bless us, to bless others, and to glorify God in every situation that we find ourselves in. Just like in Acts 8, we might find ourselves in a season of difficulty. Your life might be really hard right now. You might be facing persecution or a great need. And the Holy Spirit can help you to get through those things. It can grow the fruit of the Spirit within you. And this community, which has the fruit of the Spirit, can help. And ultimately, we know God, through Jesus, helps in those difficult situations. It's the only thing that does, really, we believe. Number two, just like in Acts 8, the Holy Spirit can help us to reconcile 
with others. Reconcile with friends, with spouses, with family members, with people at work, with neighbors. Bringing people back together. Bringing people to peace with one another. Reconciling difficult relationships, difficult situations. Maybe you've been rebuked recently. I know I get rebuked fairly often. It's an old school word of just saying, hey, maybe the thing you did was not the best. Okay? The Holy Spirit can help us to respond to that humbly. Or maybe we need to rebuke others. This happens a lot. I'm sorry, Natasha. Natasha's a high-flying executive business person, and I'm not. So sometimes at the end of the day when she comes back from work, she'll say, it's difficult job, difficult work today. Had to have this conversation with this person. And I'm like, I do not know how you have those hard conversations because that is not good. But the Holy Spirit can give her wisdom and love and patience to have those conversations in a way that builds people up and challenges people. Maybe we need the Holy Spirit to help us in a time of success. Maybe things are really, really great for you like that right now, like they are for Philip. And actually, even though they're really, really great, he needed to listen to God's call to be able to move where God wanted him to go because God had something even more for him, for his, for his uh, plan, for his life. So maybe you need to faithfully seek, maybe we need, maybe I need to faithfully seek God in one of these situations like we see in Acts 8, persecution, reconciliation, rebuke, and following God's call. This is the last, the last thought, and uh, we're going to come into land, as they say in church. We're going to come into land. Uh, so maybe, Hannah, you can join us. Um, ultimately, these acts of faithfulness Faithfulness in persecution, faithfulness in reconciliation, faithfulness in rebuke, faithfulness in following God's call. They all made those in the early church and Philip faithful witnesses. Faithful witnesses. Fulfilling Jesus' command in Acts 1.8 to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Our greatest call, we believe, is to be Jesus' witnesses. Because it's only when we have a relationship with God and actually see God and know him and see things that we can witness it, right? It wouldn't make much sense to call a witness who wasn't at the event or had never experienced something. When we've experienced our relationship with God, we are called to be witnesses and to tell others about it, whether that's in word or deed. And it's by the Holy Spirit that we have the strength to do that. And that's kind of the last encouragement is if we want to be a faithful witness, and if we want to be able to have faithfulness in all of these other areas, then we need to be spending time with God. If we want that abundant life, whatever season we find ourselves in, we need, and we want our lives to bear witness through word and deed, then we need to be living with God through his Holy Spirit. And God wants us to do that. He wants to be with us. It's not about the, the doing, it's about the being. It's about the waiting. And that's why ultimately the first point is that we wait for God and the Holy Spirit. And then the doing comes as a natural expression out of the incredible things that God is doing in our lives. So, amen, thank you. Get you your money afterwards. So, let's pray 
and then we're going to worship together uh, and respond. Um, there will be an opportunity as we worship together to, uh, to respond in prayer if you'd like to be prayed for. Uh, I will be down here and we'll find some other folk uh, also to join in. Those who are, uh, you know, if you see people needing prayer and you are a, a fully-fledged, usual, regular SPSer, I'm looking at some people right now. Uh, here we are. Here we go. Um, feel free to, to pray for others. Um, so if you'd like to be prayed for, it'll be down here. And also, I need to say one more time, if all of this is a bit like, what? Um, I'll be at the back after prayer for at the Discover More stand, at the Discover stand. So if you have any questions about what I've said, uh, about uh, anything to do with SPS or the life of the church, that's a good place to, to meet after the service. But let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are living in us by your Holy Spirit and that you are available to those who don't know you yet, that you live with us day to day, you guide us day to day, you are with us in the trials, you're with us in the triumphs, you're with us through persecution, you're with us to help us to reconcile to one another and to yourself. You're with us when we face rebuke or need to give rebuke. You're with us when we need to follow your guidance. Thank you that you are faithful to us. You never leave us nor forsake us. And that because of that, we can be faithful to your call on our lives. And I just pray right now for anyone in this room who doesn't know the call on your life, that you might challenge them, open their heart to ask more, to ask the questions, to find out what this is all about. I just thank you, Father, that you love us, that you are here for us, and that your Holy Spirit lives in us, that we can have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. We want to worship you and thank you for that. Thank you that you build your church, that we are an incredible community that expresses those things, and that we need to merely wait for you as the disciples did. So we wait for you now as we worship together. In Jesus' name.